Let's pray this morning that God would help us to be gracious hosts to our city and our nation, right? Amen? Yeah, we can pray for our country, but now we get a chance to interact with some of the people in our country. I know most of them are athletes, but they bring relatives and family come too. So let's pray that they would feel blessed by our church and somehow connect with God. Wouldn't it be awesome if some one person connects with God while they're in Red Deer? That would be amazing. We can pray to that end. Amen? And then this morning, let's ask God to help open our lives. Because what I'm going to share this morning, I believe, is the means in which to touch our world. How many are interested in being a part of what God wants to do in our world? And so we have to have the right heart to do that. And let's pray that God will open our heart, we'll hear what He wants from us, and allow His Spirit to work through us. So Father, I just thank You for the privilege of hosting our nation in our community. And I pray as a church family that people will come to uh, our morning coffee time, our breakfast on Saturday, the opportunity where we have a, one of our music teams to sing uh, on Friday night this week. I just pray for all of these touches and contacts that we have with people in our community and around our nation. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be gracious hosts, that the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ would emanate through our lives. And I pray this morning as we open our hearts to you, as your, as your Holy Spirit is touching our lives, Lord, may we be conduits. May we be the vessels. May we may be the channels in which you're going to bring hope and peace and joy into troubled hearts. And I thank you for that. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Historian Will and uh, Ariel Durant in 1968 wrote a book. It was entitled The Lessons of History. And in one of the chapters, they start with this. The chapter was on history and war. And in the chapter, they start with this. War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Well, that's, that's not a good record, is it? And they're not counting all of the conflicts, like internal conflicts in nation and you know other military engagement. They're talking about full-out wars here. Our world is filled with conflict. Anybody say that's true? Isn't that true? And yet there's a longing in our culture for peace. You know, when I go to Israel, for example, and I talk to Jewish people in Israel or to even Palestinians in Israel, you know, you hear the cry of their heart. You know what they long for? Many of them just long for peace. They're so tired of conflict. They hate it. They just long for peace. But why does peace seem to elude us as human beings? It's such a great question. And I like what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he shares the biblical insight into the problem. He said, the explanation of our troubles is human lust, greed, selfishness, and self-centeredness. What's he doing? He's internalizing it. He's personalizing the problem. It is the cause of all the trouble and the discord, whether between individuals, between groups within a nation, and between nations themselves. In other words, he's saying war is an internal problem. War is a heart issue. War comes from within each one of our lives. It's far more personal than we realize. We always think, well, somebody else is causing this grief. You know, years ago, there was a correspondent for the London Times who was researching and reporting on all, at that time, some of the current world problems. This is probably about a hundred and some odd years ago. And it ended with an article with this statement at each article. You know how papers do kind of series. 
and it said, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, who was a noted journalist, wrote back to the London Times, and he wrote, and he said these words, dear editor, the question has been raised, what is wrong with the world? And then he put, I am. In other words, I'm the problem. And you see, once we recognize it's not the other person that's the problem, but we are the problem, then things begin to change in our lives. In other words, Michael Green is saying at the base of most of the world's problems is the sinfulness of man. So what is really needed is a radical change in each of us in our heart. And when I talk about our heart, I'm thinking of it in mind of you know the, the Hebrew thinking of the heart, which includes the essence of our personality. It includes our minds, it includes our emotions, it includes our will. It's, it's who we are. We have to change who we are. That is such a difficult thing to wrap our minds around. You know, one of the hardest things to admit is that we're the problem. How many think that's a difficult thing to admit? We're the problem. It's a lot easier to say, you're the problem, or to say, that person's the problem, or those people are the problem. But to walk up and honestly say, I'm the problem, is far harder. But you know what's interesting? The Apostle Paul said this. He said, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is for sinners of whom I'm the chief of sinners. You see, until we get to that place where we recognize we're the problem, we never get to the solution. And that is true in life. So often the major problems that people are experiencing is the fact they don't even know they have a problem. Or they misdiagnose the problem. Or they're not addressing what the core issue is with the problem. So what is really needed is a radical transformation in the human heart. Isn't it interesting that Jesus came into the world at Christmas time. And when you think of that beautiful story, and I'm going to just bring us back to something, because sometimes when we get caught up with Christmas, we're caught up with all the wrong things. But let's just go back to that story for just a moment and remember that Mary and Joseph are now about to have a baby boy who is known as the Prince of Peace. And this is what the angels announced to shepherds in a nearby field. And this is what it says in Luke's gospel. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. In other words, this child is coming into the world to bring humanity peace. And now he frames it in such a way that this peace only comes to whom God's favor is being shown. And what's God's favor but God's grace? And when you and I receive God's grace, we receive God's peace. And when you and I receive peace in our lives, once we can have peace with God and we have peace with ourselves, it now becomes possible to have peace with my spouse and with my children. Amen? And I can have peace with my coworkers. You know, it's an amazing thing that starts happening. So we have to get that addressed in our own lives. You know, right from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see him reaching out to the people in his generation. But he's coming with an interesting message, right? 
As a matter of fact, we're looking at that right now in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the king, and he's come and he's made a declaration of what his kingdom is all about. And it's unlike what anybody has ever heard before. What Jesus is talking about is so radical, so different, that you know some of us have maybe have heard these words before, and we have kind of tamed them down. But when they were first spoken, let me tell you, this was such radical information. Think about where many of the Jewish people were who were now suffering under the oppression of Rome. We had a whole group of people called the Zealots. They were patriots. And what were they saying? We want this tyranny, this political oppression to be thrown off of us. And I sense that many times, even in our own culture, when we don't agree with the political leadership, we feel like we're being oppressed. Isn't that true? Some of us, you know... Maybe the rest of you go, I'm I'm just long for the ride. I don't know. But I'm just basically pointing out that maybe we're frustrated, we're upset, or we have comments or thoughts about how things are happening and how we're being governed and all the rest of it. Well, these guys, they they took things into their hands, and so there was a, a, a constant conflict between what we call the Jewish patriots, the zealots, who were constantly going about, you know, creating physical havoc for the Roman occupiers. I mean, there was guerrilla warfare sometimes. And eventually this conflict continued to bubble and escalate until finally in 70 AD, you had a full-on war starting in 66 AD, traveling all the way to 73 AD. But in 70 AD, Jerusalem was totally destroyed as the capital city of Israel. And, And so many spiritual ramifications went through that nation because in their minds, God's presence was in the temple and the temple was destroyed. What a sad, sad day. You know, how different is Jesus's approach to liberating people? It's so unique. Listen to what Philip Schaff, the church historian, says about Jesus and his life and ministry. He said, This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Isn't that amazing? You know, without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effect in which beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he never published a book, he set more pens in motion, furnished more themes for more sermons, orations, and discussions, learned volumes, works of arts, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. That ministry that lasted only three years, and yet in those three years has condensed the deepest meaning of the history of religion. No great life life ever passed so swiftly, so quietly, so humbly, so far removed from the noise and commotion of the world, and no great life after its close excited such universal and lasting interest. What is he basically saying? There's been nobody else like Jesus. And the way Jesus approached life was unlike how anybody had ever approached life before. you know why that is? Because Jesus is more than just a man. He is a man, but he's more than that. He's God become a man. And what we're seeing is how God expected humanity to live on this planet. And I think it's so moving and so powerful. So we're looking at the words of Jesus. And I want to take a look at this beatitude. This this is the seventh beatitude. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers... For they will be called the children, or in some translation, the sons of God. Now, you know what's interesting about translation work? You know, why did the NIV put children? I think it's to help us get a sense of, 
you know, inclusivity, and they're trying to negate some of the gen- gender distinctions. But sometimes they make a mistake in translating that way. And so I, I looked up the word myself, and it's actually the word should be translated, they shall be called the sons of God. Now you go, well, why, why wouldn't they just put the sons of God? Because I think the NIV is trying to be... I hate to say it, but a little bit politically correct, <laughs> you know. But let's just go back and say it this way. If we're the sons of God, why would he even use this terminology? Because I don't think you and I today have an understanding of what that really means. Because if you're a Jewish person and you hear this idea of the son and God, in Jewish thought, the son often bore the meaning, the partaker of the character of or the likeness of. It's a little different idea. So what Jesus is actually saying is simply this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they're going to be like their Father in heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they're taking on the nature of Almighty God. They're becoming godly. How many sense? That's a very powerful statement. And I'm not saying that every Christian is like this. Unfortunately, some people, as we're about to see, even in the church, don't exhibit the nature that God wants to reflect to the culture around us. And that's why I think it's important we get a proper understanding. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. You know, he answers the question, why are peacemakers blessed? That's an interesting question. And he says this, the answer is they're blessed because they are so absolutely unlike everybody else. They just stand out in a crowd. The way they think is differently. The way they approach life is differently. And because their approach in life is so different, all of a sudden people respond and listen to what they have to say because there are really two ways and approaches into life. And, you know, recently I've been doing a lot of studying in uh, the wisdom literature. And one of the things that the book of Proverbs does is show a contrast between two ways of life. It's, you know, it's almost this one way is the wrong way and one way is the right way. One way is the way of wisdom, which is the way of God, and the other is the way of folly, which is the way that's unlike God. It's not because people are stupid. It's just that they're not following the ways of God. So what I'm going to do today is look briefly at the book of James, because James is a wisdom piece of literature in the New Testament, and he actually begins to unpack what it means to be a peacemaker, what are its character, characteristics of being a person that's like God, that's a peacemaker, that's actually going to produce some amazing results. And, and this is, I get so excited when I think about this, because in James chapter 3 and verse 18, it says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And what I want to just say about that is simply when you and I are like God and we are peacemakers, what we're really doing as we exhibit the characteristics of God in our lives and we're you know relating in this way, what we're really going to reap is the right things. So how many are interested in seeing some amazingly powerful right things happen as a result of your life being like God? That's basically what I'm focusing my thoughts on this morning. And so I want to take a look at these two approaches to life, because I really believe there's only two approaches to life. You know, we're sometimes confused, because we're we're so used to all these options today, but really, when you distill them down, there's two. You know, there's a narrow road and a broad way. The narrow way leads to life, the broad way leads to destruction. So James is going to give us, you know, in the Hebrew thinking, these two approaches to life. And the first one is the earthly wisdom that leads to peacekeeping. 
which is not peacemaking, and I'm going to share the difference in a minute, and ultimately leads to terrible conflicts and war and difficulty and relationship breakups and nations fighting with nations and civil strife and all the rest of it. So peace at all costs. This is what a peacekeeper is about. It's trying to have peace at all costs. And what we end up doing is compromising the truth and we end up never addressing the issues. It really deals with the inner disposition of heart that is really motivated by earthly wisdom. See, James says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. As a matter of fact, in James, he goes on to talk a little bit about, um, I'm just going to, I don't have my, I have that next one, but it's not, okay. The next verse says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's kind of a nasty description, isn't it? I think it is. So let's take a look at the elements that are mentioned here describing the heart condition. When we have earthly wisdom, what happens is we, be, we have bitter envy. Bitter envy. That's strong language. You know, bitterness is a strong thing. It's like a poison, right? Envy. What is envy? Envy is when I desire something that others have that I don't have. You know, I'm envious. I want what they've got, but I don't have it. You know, our cold culture is predicated on envy. That's what advertising is trying to do. It's trying to make you feel envious of what others have and you don't have. You follow that? You know, and the secret of life is being content with what we do have. But we're never content because we always want something we don't have. That's what envy does. It's problematic in our life. Okay. And then he says, selfish ambition in your heart. You know, it doesn't talk about ambition. It's nothing wrong with being ambitious, but it depends what you're ambitious, what's motivating you to be ambitious. If it's just for yourself, that's a wrong ambition. If your ambition is to help other people, that's a good ambition. You see, there's a little bit of a distinction there. We need to understand that. And it goes on here. Basically, the qualities that are being described here that I think come from an unregenerated heart. You say, what's an unregenerated heart? It's a heart that doesn't know God. You know, it's not been transformed by God's loving grace. See, before we know Christ, you can, you can have a moral person, but they, they still have an unregenerated heart. You know, what I, you know what I notice when you have your heart changed by God? All of a sudden, your desires change. How many can say that's true? All, I don't even understand. All of a sudden, you know, the things I, I never had any interest in or desire, and all of a sudden I really want those things. You know, when I, before I was a, a real Christian, you know, I didn't just go to church and say I was a Christian. When I really became a Christian, I noticed a major change in my life. I had a heart after God. I wanted to please God, and I actually enjoyed reading the Bible, and I enjoyed learning about God, and I enjoyed coming to church, and I enjoyed worshiping God, and I enjoyed it when God spoke into my spirit, and all of a sudden I felt God connecting with my spirit and challenging me, and I had a hunger to know God and to do what he wanted me to do. And I never had that before. And you know why I had that change? Because my heart was changed. And one of the great tragedies in the church world today is we can be in the church, we can grow up in the church, and we can know about Christ, and we can know the gospel, but we've never experienced this amazing change of heart called regeneration where we've been transformed by God's Spirit and we have a heart after God. Isn't that amazing? 
Every person has to have that experience. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you'll not see the kingdom of God. Unless you've been born twice, unless you've been born again, unless you've been changed by God's spirit and given a new heart, you're going to have a heart for the wrong things in life, even if you're sitting in a church pew. That's very interesting. Remember, James is writing to Christians here, and he's talking about these two approaches to life. Obviously, some Christians were slipping in to an old approach to life. Paul, writing to the Philippians, he's talking about doing a good thing for the wrong reasons. How many think preaching is a good thing? You're telling people about God. But listen to what he says in Philippians. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Wrong motive. But others out of goodwill. Okay, so now he's talking about two motivations and why we're doing. So you can be doing a good thing, but for the wrong reasons. Or you can be doing a good thing for the right reasons. How many know he's making a distinction here? It says, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I've been put here for the defense of the gospel. In other words, some are doing it out of goodwill. They're, they're motivated out of a right heart. But he says, the latter, uh, but the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Wow. So even a good thing like preaching can be done with the wrong attitude and the wrong heart and the wrong motivation. How many think that's bad? It is bad. Okay. Creates a lot of problems. So what was Paul's attitude, even knowing people were doing the wrong thing? Listen to Paul's attitude. This is an attitude of a peacemaker. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Paul goes, yeah, I know some of these guys. They're, they're not with the right program. But as long as Christ is being preached and people are responding to Christ, that's what I care about. Isn't that amazing? That's pretty powerful. You know, I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, he writes some interesting things about this. He says this, before one can be a peacemaker, one really must be entirely delivered from yourself, from self-interest and self-concern. The peacemaker has only one concern, and that's to bring glory, the glory of God among people. In other words, God, refine my heart, you know, do a work inside of me, cleanse me, renew me, give me a pure heart. Isn't it interesting that the beatitude before peacemakers is be blessed are the pure in heart? And we're going to look at that in a moment. Look at 2 Timothy. We need to understand this is how a peacemaker operates. Now he's talking to a Christian leader here. He says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, not argumentative. He has to be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. Does that sound like an argumentative, contentious person? I don't think so. What he's saying is, you need to contend for the truth, Timothy, but don't be contentious. He says, when you're instructing them, do so gently, in the hope that God will grant them a change of mind. That's what repentance is. In the hope that God will help them change their minds, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. What, what does this tell you? Here's what you have to understand. When you're talking to people, it's really hard to change people's minds. Anybody discovered that? Matter of fact, most people, you don't change their minds. Only the Spirit of God can reveal to them that they're wrong. 
So you have to do this with such love and such gentleness, recognizing great arguments are all aside. And there's nothing wrong with having great presentation and great arguments, but to be argumentative and to be nasty and to be mean is never going to win anybody. You're just turning them off. He's saying you have to recognize, yeah, tell them the truth, but do it in a loving way and trusting that God's Spirit will give them a change of mind. That's the way we have to approach it. In verse 23, it says that peacemakers avoid foolish and stupid questions. <laughs> you know, I, I look at Jesus. You know, Jesus is actually my model for my pastoral ministry. I love watching what Jesus does. Sometimes, you know, they ask him a question. What does he do? He asks them another one. <laughs> he doesn't answer the question. He just ask them one, right? I mean, he doesn't always answer questions. Sometimes questions are stupid. Sometimes people are trying to set you up. They're trying to make you look bad. You know, so Jesus was quite smart. He didn't, didn't fall for that stuff. You know, and when he did sometimes, some of the answers he came up with, like, Lord, that's just pure wisdom. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Knowing that if he says pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to have all the common people turn against him. And if he says don't do it, then he's in, he's in trouble with the authorities. What does Jesus say? Show me a coin. Oh, whose head's on there? Oh, Caesar. He said, why don't you give Caesar what belongs to him? And what belongs to God, give it to him. How, how many think that's amazing wisdom? See, that's a wisdom that I believe is evidencing a peacemaker's attitude. Look at the source of this earthly wisdom. It comes not from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Its origins are from Satan. As a matter of fact, we know that there's a wisdom that this world has that's demonic. As a matter of fact, it goes right back to the Garden of Eden when the woman saw, after being you know, tempted by the serpent, who we now know is just, you know, he was, the serpent there is really a picture of Satan. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate it when God had said, don't do that, right? Why did she want to do that? She wanted to gain a wisdom. There is a wisdom that this world offers, but it's the wrong kind of wisdom. As a matter of fact, what happens as a result of that apple or whatever fruit it was, something was an apple, whatever, was death and destruction to our world, conflict entered our world. So the result of the wisdom, this kind of wisdom in 1 Corinthians is the wisdom of this world is what? Foolishness in the sight of God. I had a little epiphany the other day. If I could live a hundred lives and every life remembered what I'd learned in the former life, and I could learn over a hundred lifetimes wisdom, okay? At the end of a hundred lifetimes... I would still know so little compared to what God knows that I thought to myself, why aren't we just listening to what God says? Because God is all wise. But sometimes we think we're smarter than God. You, you and I will never be smarter than God. The wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are what? They're futile. They're, they're vain. They're empty. They don't, have, they don't understand. They still haven't got the full picture yet. You know, we only know in part. God knows it in all. And we certainly see this in society, but we unfortunately can see it many times in the life of God's people. How many know the Corinthian church was noted for its strife and division? Anybody know that? 
And Paul was warning that church. Actually, he could probably talk about Philippians. I mean, a number of situations, even on the island of Crete, they had strife. Actually, I will say this. Wherever there are people, there's strife. And even though there's Christians, many times, many Christians succumb to the wisdom of this world. And it creates strife. You see, peacemakers set things right. Okay, I'm skipping. Oh. Okay, what's the result of this kind of wisdom? Well, you have envy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil practice. But peacemakers are the ones who set things right by addressing what is wrong. Now, you know, how many know that a lot of times we want to avoid conflict? Anybody know that? Actually, I'm I'm reading a book called uh, It's Unmarital Therapy by John Gottman. John Gottman did 30-some-odd years of marital research, plus researchers with a whole team. And he said, you know, there's, there's four things that destroy marriages. And basically, one of the behavioral patterns of husbands is an is a element called stonewalling. And stonewalling is simply not addressing the issues. And every wife is going, that's exactly the problem. My, what, my husband is ignoring the issues. But on the other side, the wife tends to just keep bringing up the issues. It's called nagging. And, <laughs> and those four things... Nagging, stonewalling, there's two others. But those help diminish marriages. Okay? You're going, well then, how do you deal with this stuff? I'm I'm telling you right now. You have to have the right heart attitude. That's what I'm trying to get at here this morning. When you have the right heart attitude, it's amazing what can start happening. First of all, you know, if I was a wife, and I'm not, I'm a husband. If I was a wife, I'd do a lot more praying. See, I think we do too much talking, not enough praying. More prayer gets better results, girls. Just tell you about it right now, okay? Husbands don't want to be told anything by their wives. How many wives have figured that out? They don't listen. Yeah. They, they, husbands are a little insecure around their wives. You, girls don't know that yet, but guys do. They figured this out. They don't, they don't want to be, you know, a guy wants, he has kind of a setup in his mind that he's, you know, he's trying to be the protector, the good guy. He wants to be the hero in the story for his wife, right? Does anybody follow this? So when your wife is telling you you're not a good guy, it's diminishing their sense of identity. Are, we following? Are you guys tracking with me here? This is important stuff. Listen real carefully. So the best thing you can do is just get on your knees and say, okay, God, your son over there, he's not getting it. Can you please talk to him? You just go around him. Okay? I'm just telling you how to do it. And you know what starts happening the husband, poor guy, doesn't realize it. If the wife can just really cry out to God, the husband's going to get the message from everybody he runs into, except for his wife. And she'll look like she's highly supportive, and everybody else will be telling him, you've got to smarten up, buddy. Okay? And eventually he's going to say to his wife, you know, I've got to change. And she's going to say, uh-huh. Just but not loud like, yeah, you're, you're, you're right, you've got to change. <laughs> he's got to go, really, dear? You've got to change? I'm supportive. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he says, I'm getting the message. Are we following? But we don't do it that way because we're so impatient. We just go right to the juggler, you know. Listen, what uh, peacemakers address things. This is what Paul says. I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. How many say that's a nasty church situation to be going into? Those are nasty people in that church, right? So Paul goes, I'm going to go in there and straighten you guys out. Because he was a Christian leader who was a peacemaker who knew how to go about doing it, had the spirit of Christ, 
And thank God there are people that can do that kind of stuff, but that takes a lot of wisdom. How many see that? You don't just send anybody in to do that. Okay, let me move on to the good news. That's the bad stuff. In the divine, there's, there's a secondly, in contrast to this human originating from the pit of hell wisdom, is the divine wisdom that produces peacemakers that lead to what is right. How many go, that's where I want to be? I, I, I want to be in the second camp, right? How many say, deliver me from the first camp. I want to be living in the second camp. Anybody with me? Everybody want to go to the second camp? Let's find out what happens there. Okay. This wisdom comes from God shaping the person's heart and leading to a number of amazing characteristics in that person's life. And they're all described in the Beatitudes. Listen to what James says. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Blessed are the pure in heart for what? They're going to see God. First thing. Isn't it interesting? James and Jesus are saying the same thing. Oh, did you know that James grew up with Jesus? Anybody know that? James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. Wow, this is interesting. These guys are on the same page. Holy Spirit's on the same page. He says, then peace-loving. So the person who's like God, who has divine wisdom, is first of all pure in heart. And then they're peace-loving. They're considerate. They're submissive. They're full of mercy and good fruit, they're impartial, and they're sincere. Wow. We're going to unpack those words in a minute. First thing that is mentioned, uh, oh, and then peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. First thing that is mentioned about divine wisdom is there's a purity about it. Now you go, what's purity, pastor? Excuse me. Purity means that you're single-minded. Pure in heart means you're not double-minded. Pure in heart means you have one passion. You know what the problem in the church world today is? We don't have enough passion for the right thing. It's real simple. Passion. We are double-minded. We are attracted to the things of this life and also to the things of God, and we have our feet in two worlds, and we're trying to have the best of both. That's really what's going on, okay? But when you are a pure of heart person, what it means is, you are no longer double-minded. You're, you're, you're single-minded. Listen to what James says in chapter, seven, of chapter 4, next chapter over. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. And what's going to happen? He'll flee from you. So here's the, here, you know when people tell me the devil's bugging me? You know, all you're telling me is you're not submitting to God. Hello? You see what it says? If I'm submitted to God, the devil runs. If the devil's in your camp and in your head and bugging you, you've got to ask yourself the question, where am I not submitting to God? Is that good practical teaching? Yes, it is. You need to get on your knees and say, okay, God, I'm not submitted to you the way I need to be. Show me where that is. Okay? Number two, come near to God. If you come near to God, what's God going to do? He's going to come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. What? You're double-minded. Can I just tell you something? When a person, when we say that person's a person of integrity, what we're really saying is that person is integrated. What we're really saying is that person is single-minded. They're not all over the map. They're not wishy-washy. They're not saying one thing to one person and another thing to another person. Aren't we kind of tired of people who are double-minded? See, when you have people like that, they can never bring real peace. They're not peacemakers. They may be peacekeepers, but when you're a peacekeeper, you're kind of like Neville Chamberlain. How many know who I'm talking about? British prime minister who met with Hitler in 1938 because he was afraid of another world war in Europe. So you know what he did? 
he, he went and agreed to allow Hitler to annex part of Czechoslovakia, another country, because there were three million Ger- German-speaking people in Czechoslovakia. And you know how long that little act of appeasement, that peacekeeping movement lasted? One year. Because within six months, Hitler went in and took over the rest of Czechoslovakia. And six months later, he attacked Poland. And there was a war anyways. You see, that's what happens when you have peacekeepers. Peacekeepers are saying peace at all costs. And they compromise and never deal with the issues. Peacemakers go, no, we have to deal with the problem. See, Jesus is a peacemaker because he left heaven to deal with the problem called sin. But he did it at his expense, not at the expense of others. There's the difference. And that's what, that's what we know we're a peacemaker. We're doing it not at others' expense. Peace-loving is mentioned here as an expression of divine wisdom that leads to what is right. Warren Worsby says, a peace based on holiness, not on compromise. God never has peace at any price. The, the, the peace of the church is not more important than the purity of the church. If the church is pure and devoted to God, there will be peace. You guys don't know this yet, but I've been a holiness preacher all along. I've been trying to get you to live close to God. That's why I believe there's peace in our church. And when people don't, you know, want to focus on this, then they just say, I want out. And I go, fine. I don't stop people. That's their choice, right? Let's take a look at these other characteristics of divine wisdom that leads to peace. Notice the list. Considerate of others. They're considerate. Submissive. To whom? To those in authority. Who's the ultimate authority? God. Submitted to the Word of God. Hey, you know what? If I submit to the Word of God, I'm, I'm actually living in wisdom, right? You know, oh, let me keep reading them. Full of mercy. I didn't put them on a PowerPoint, but it's on that list in that verse. Full of mercy. Willing to show grace to those people who need it. Exhibiting good fruit. We begin to see the results of God's Spirit at work in our lives when we're walking in the Spirit. Impartial, meaning that we're not swayed by the status of others and are able to render right judgments. You know what? If you're an impartial person, you're going to do the right thing no matter who's looking. And you're going to do the right thing no matter what it costs you and no matter what people think of you. That means you're impartial. You say, I'm just going to do the right thing. Too bad more of us just don't do the right thing. If somebody's asking you to do the wrong thing, say, sorry, I'm not going to do that. You say, it may cost me my job. Listen, folks, I'm going to tell you a little secret. Think of it this way. That job isn't worth it. Here's what you need to know. I'm employed by God. If I'm a child of God, he's my father. He's going to take care of me. If this job dries up, God's going to provide a a place somewhere else. Do not compromise just to maintain a job because you're going to ruin your soul. You need to be stronger than that. You need to say, okay, God, I'm going to step aside. It may be difficult. I may suffer for a while, but you know what? I'm going to do the right thing. And you know what? God's going to honor you. You need to know that. Okay, sincere means without hypocrisy. No pretense. And what's the end result of being a peacemaker? Righteousness. Righteousness comes out of that. People who operate out of human wisdom, who lack God's wisdom, generate a different outcome in their life. They become defensive. They're self-concerned. It leads to division and party spirit, exposing the absence of truth from our hearts. This is what Alex Moyer says when we operate a human wisdom. In other words, we create escalating conflict and ultimately the end of relationships when we're operating on a human wisdom. Isaiah says, this is the effect of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness will be what? Peace. 
The end result of doing the right thing is always going to be peace. The end result. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and a confidence forever. My people will live in a peaceful dwelling places and secure homes in undisturbed places of rest. You know what? I'm going to just say this. I love our home, my home. When people come to my home and they stay in my home, you know what, you know what the comment is? We love this home. We feel peace. Isn't that beautiful? That's what you'll feel in my home, peace. Because when you do the right things, the end result is peace. Do the right things. Let me close. In 1962, Don and Carol Richardson and their seven-month-old baby went to live among a very primitive cannibalistic tribe in Papua New Guinea. Don Richardson went to school at Three Hills. Okay? He went to a tribe called the Sawi people. The Sawi people, very difficult language to learn. Don Richardson said he spent between 8 and 10 hours a day trying to learn their language. It took a while. Eventually, he mastered their language, began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Sawi people. You know what was really disturbing? When he told the story of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, they all started cheering and they laughed that Jesus had been betrayed. They actually, in their worldview, Judas Iscariot was their hero. How many know, what do you do now? You know, like, their worldview was so skewed of what was right and wrong. And remember, these people now, but these people are living in a conflicted relationship. They're related to each other, but they're in different little areas in the Papua New Guinea jungles, and these people are actually attacking each other, killing each other, and eating each other. They're cannibalistic, okay? So Don and Carol decided, you know what, we can't do it. What can we do with these guys? We're going to leave. So they told the people, because they were ministering among them, we're going to leave. The people did not want them to leave. They said, okay, we're going to make peace. <laughs> Don Richardson said, how are you going to make peace? You guys, all you know is conflict, conflict, conflict. They said, watch. They brought the tribes, they came together, and they gave their children to the enemy to care for them. Now, how many think that's a very interesting move, to give your enemy? He was watching, he said, that child, he says, if a man could actually give his own son to his enemies, that man could now be trusted. So what he was actually watching in the ceremony, he saw one man in particular run toward his enemy camp and literally give his son to his hated foe to care for. That child became known in their culture as the peace child. This is what brought peace back into the conflicted, warring state of these tribal people. And Richardson goes, that's a redemptive analogy. And he took that story and he said, you know what? God sent a peace child to a warring world. Humanity was at war with God. God brought his peace child and gave it to his enemies. And immediately they understood the gospel. How many think that's amazing? So there is a, there's a place where you can actually touch people's lives. Now, why am I saying all of this? That's what it means to be a peacemaker. We have to give up something. It's at our expense to bring righteousness to other people. That's the way it always works. The question we have to ask ourselves today is, are we a peacekeeper or a peacemaker? Big difference. 
Are we operating out of human wisdom or divine wisdom? I shared the characteristics. You can say, well, I'm operating on divine wisdom, Pastor. I'm going, no, no, look at the characteristics. Because you see, when God looks at our lives, it's not what you're telling him. It's not what you're telling us. It's what you are exhibiting that people see. And if we're going to reach our culture, folks, we have to submit ourselves to the Word of God. If we're going to reach our culture, we have to become peacemakers. Do you see it? That means I have to live a pure life. I have to live a singular life. I have to be a purposed person in order to do this. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They're the ones who are like me. Let's stand. Conflict is a part of the human equation. Isn't that true? And we've all had moments of conflict. Even the best people can have conflict. It's true. We know that. We're talking about the general tendencies in our lives. I'm going to hear you say, you know what, Pastor? Only two approaches to life. Only you can be honest. Look at your life and say, how much conflict is in my life? And how is that conflict being created? Don't look at the other person and say, I know who that is. I get rid of that person. All conflict will cease. No, the question is, if you're taken out of the equation, will conflict cease? Are you bringing the conflict? And it's not, it, it, you know, it's, it's like, am I addressing the issues in my own soul? That's what I'm getting at. Because it's pretty hard for me to address the issues in someone else's life if I'm not doing it in my own life. That's called hypocrisy. Are we following? For me to walk up and say, hey, what are you doing here? I can't be doing it too, right? You follow what I'm getting at? That's inconsistency. You can't do it. It's not going to work. You know? To be able to go to people and say, I'm here to help bring peace in this situation. There's a lot of conflict in our world. There's conflict in marriage, conflicts in families, conflicts at workplace. I can just go down, conflict. You know, we have conflicts in our, you know, even, this is interesting, even within their own political parties, there's conflicts. There's conflicts between political people, right? There's conflict everywhere. I see it all the time. All this conflict. How is that going to ever stop? You have to have a peacemaker that the effect will be the right things will begin to happen. Do people resist peace? Of course they do. Every time someone rejects the gospel, they're rejecting peace. And they're voting for more conflict in their own lives. How's that? I started out today saying it takes a change of heart to have peace problem with conflict is that it's something within us. We have to address it inside ourselves. And with every head bowed here today, how many can here say, you know what? I've made my peace with God. Just raise your hand. I've made my peace with God. I'm at peace with God. See, I got my hand up. I've got my, I'm at peace with God. All right. If you didn't raise your hand this morning and you need to do business with God, say, Lord, I'm not at peace with you. And you're the peacemaker. There's got to be issues inside of me that need to change. 
I'm asking you right now to identify the things in my life where I'm in rebellion and I'm not submitting to who you are, the Creator, and to my Father. I'm in rebellion. Forgive me. Right now, how many here are just saying, right? I'm praying that prayer. Lord, show me where I'm in rebellion. And forgive me. Yeah, some of you. It's good. Yeah, it's good. It's good. That's going to, you know, listen, when you get right with God, you'll get right with yourself. If you don't have peace with yourself, it's impossible to have peace with others. To find peace within yourself, you have to have peace with God. Then you'll have peace with yourself. Then you will have peace with others. Okay? Later on, this next message next week when I talk about persecution I'll tell you why when we have peace with God and peace with ourselves why there's times we have conflict with other people it's called persecution because they don't want to receive peace and you threaten the status quo peacemakers threaten the status quo do you know that? because we're bringing the peace of God into the world we're bringing the kingdom of God into a world that's in rebellion against God that's why there's conflict with some people so don't walk out of here and going, well, yeah, I, I'm a peacemaker, but why do I have some conflict? Well, next week I'll talk about that. It's called persecution. I want to make sure that we have peace with ourselves before Almighty God. Amen? We've got to start there. We've got to be pure in heart. We've got to be peacemakers. And then we'll talk about the blessedness that comes from being persecuted. Because that's the next step. Okay? So, Father, we just thank you this morning. We're looking at your transformative message that changes human hearts and lives. I pray today, Lord, that we'll not walk out of here dismissing what we've heard, that we'll long in our hearts to be at peace with you. That's the most important thing. That we will experience the peace of God because we have peace with God. And that, Lord, we become peacemakers. We become like you. And we bring hope and the effect of our lives is making things right. We thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave.